Reformation Sunday, we continue in our series, The Prophetic Messiah, uh, through Matthew's eyes. And I, I don't want to, uh, you to be misled. You know, most of our Scottish forebears were lowlanders. Uh, we weren't the highlanders for the most part, but there were Protestants in the highlands as well. And so, you know, there's always some crossover, and we know what colors. went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to the Gentiles. And in his name, the Gentiles. Christians to throw them in jail, and on that trip, it's interesting, you know, he's going to arrest people, and all of a sudden, Scripture tells us Jesus arrested him from the sky, converted him, and turned him blind in the process. And you may remember that God used a man by the name of Ananias to give Saul back his sight. But as you can imagine, Ananias was worried about going to see this Pharisee who had the authority to throw into prison anyone who called on the name of Jesus. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him. How much he must suffer for the 
letters as well as the book of Acts, we can see that obviously the Lord did not exaggerate. There in Acts chapter 9, Paul did suffer a great deal for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of gospel. Paul was despised and rejected. He suffered uh, beatings and stonings, imprisonments, shipwrecks, cold and hunger, and on and on we could go. And he tells Timothy in his second letter, the third chapter, he says, you know my persecutions, you know my sufferings, what happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And then he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now notice he doesn't say there they might be persecuted. He doesn't say they could be persecuted. He says they will be persecuted. In thinking about persecution, I was stuck, struck by a quotation that I found from someone who was tied to the ministry of the Voice of the Martyrs. And he once heard a Vietnamese Christian remark, suffering is not the worst thing that can happen to us. Disobedience to God is the worst thing. This is why Paul goes on to say to Timothy there in that third chapter that I've already quoted from you. He says, As for you, continue in what you have learned. In other words, hang in there. Persevere. Obey. Press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And we know that. We know we're supposed to run the race with perseverance, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews 12 teaches us. And we have to do that. Because persecution is real. And it's worth it. Those who study this sort of thing tell us that more Christians were killed in the 20th century alone than in the 19th centuries leading up to that 20th century. And persecution continues to grow in the world and in this nation of ours. And should the Lord tarry, who knows how many Christians will die in this 21st century. Disobedience to God is. I want you to think about that statement a few moments and probably not for the reasons you assume. I want you to think about that statement in order to get into the frame of mind that we see in these Pharisees here this morning in this text who are dealing with Jesus. The Jews had suffered much down through the generations. I imagine the Jewish people, more than any other nation on this earth, have suffered more in their time. They knew what it was like to suffer. And they would have agreed with this statement, suffering is not the worst thing that can happen to us. Disobedience to God is. And we know that they felt that way because the Jewish historian Josephus tells us about times when Jews were attacked on the Sabbath. 
know, their enemies knew that these Jewish people, they're strange. They don't do anything on that one day of the week. So let's attack them on that day and see if they do anything. They would not defend themselves. Not even Saul. They would rather lose the battle, even their very lives, than be disobedient or what they understood to be disobedient on the Sabbath. And this is the type of mindset that Jesus is up against in this text. And so when Jesus declares something like he does just before our text, had we read the verse before our text, he told them the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You know, that's the story where his disciples were hungry one Sabbath morning and they plucked some some ears of grain and ate. And the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, you know, why are your disciples breaking the law? And Jesus starts saying, have you never read about David? You did thus and so. And at the end of that little scenario, that's when Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. These kinds of events are fueling the actions by the Pharisees where they ask questions and set up situations to test Jesus or to accuse him. However, this is such an important concept in today's text that Jesus goes on the offensive and counters their question about it being lawful to heal on the Sabbath with a question of his own because most interpreters of the law in his day and time would have agreed with his example of taking care to save an animal. And Jesus says, what animal is it? Your sheep falls into the pit. Aren't you going to pull it out to save its life, even on the Sabbath? Now, why would they do that? They both would have thought about murder. And Jesus says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? got it wrong. Like this world has it wrong today. Putting animals on the same level as human beings. People are worth so much more than animals because we're made in the image of God as the Word teaches us. That's for another day and another message. Let me end with the Genesis. And then Jesus says it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Don't you think it's good? It's lawful to do good. Jesus is arguing here for a higher principle, if you will. It's not that we simply abstain from work on the Sabbath, but that we should be ready to do good on the Sabbath. We could say that Jesus' principle here is that there's no time so sacred that it cannot be used to meet a need of someone else. Jesus understands what the prophet Micah had to say in his sixth chapter. And I know the choir understands this because you got an anthem about this. You know, where he's asking the question, what does God require of me? Does, does he want thousands of lambs sacrificed on the altar? Would he be happy with rivers of, of oil? What does God really want? 
and he'll show you what is good to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus is saying in a way here to the Pharisees, you know, you need to learn to love kindness. As a Reformation study Bible puts it, Jesus does not teach that the Sabbath is abolished by the coming of the kingdom. He came, as he tells us, not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. The problem was not that the Pharisees observed the Sabbath, but that they misinterpreted it and turned what should have been a delight into a burden. You know, coming to worship is never to be a burden. It's to be a delight. That we get to come into God's presence. That we get to sing His praises. That we get to come into the presence of of one another. That's part of what these fifth Sunday uh, single services are all about, that we as the church, some of us are used to the 9 o'clock, some of us are used to the 11, we don't ever get to see each other. But it's a delight to come into God's worship. See, they misinterpreted as they misinterpreted who Jesus really was. For after Jesus heals this man in our text, we're told the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They're convinced that Jesus is disobeying the law. And remember, disobedience is the worst thing that could happen. They do not believe Jesus claimed the Messianic authority, though he hasn't made a lot of those claims. Nor do they agree with his interpretation of the law. They are convinced that Jesus is not on God's side, that he is, in fact, a heretic. And that's why he needs to die. Now, we have the luxury of hindsight as we look at this text, and we could talk about how wrong these Jewish leaders were, but we had better notice one thing. Each of us, regardless of when we live, are faced with the question of what are we going to do with this Jesus of Nazareth? Who do we believe him to be? Is he a good teacher? Is he just a prophet? Or is he a lunatic? Or is he a heretic? Or is he the Son of the living God and the Savior and Lord of all mankind? This group of Pharisees had made their choice. What about you? And does your life reflect that choice and your decisions, your priorities, the way that you live day in and day out? And then as we continue on through this passage, we change gears a little. We began this sermon today talking about persecution because the text speaks to Jesus working and doing ministry within a hostile environment where people now want him dead and are out there working day in and day out to make sure that they can murder him. Some of our Scottish forebears in the faith knew 
all about living in a hostile environment as Protestants and Presbyterians, especially if they were under the rule of a, of a Roman Catholic king or queen, or especially when they were trying to be Presbyterians when the crown was trying to force an Episcopal form of worship upon them, the covenanters. You know, that's what they went through, the so-called killing time in the 1680s, where men and women were killed for their faith because they believed that Scripture taught the Presbyterian form of government. They would not submit and would not yield to an Episcopal form of worship. The covenanters, you know, go all the way back to the National Covenant of 1638, where many of them signed that their own blood, basically saying that nobody on this earth is going to rule me because the king is Jesus. And he's the only one. And that's what he's talking about at the end. The covenant. As this culture of ours continues to move toward more of a hostile that Jesus, aware of what the Pharisees were planning, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. And Matthew tells us that this was to fulfill what Isaiah wrote in his 42nd chapter, so that the humble and discreet work of the Messiah as the suffering servant will ultimately achieve victory, not place himself fully in the public eye and endure the cross that has been prepared for him. But at this point in time, he shows us that we have to choose our times to fight and our times to stay out of the limelight so that we can continue to minister in God's kingdom. That's what Jesus does as he continues to help people in need by using the longest Old Testament in his entire gospel. Matthew gives us a picture of a Messiah who chooses a path that will still allow him to minister, to serve others in his environment. His advance of justice, as one scholar put it, will not break those who are abused, nor will it smother those who are nearly out of resources. Rather, he will provide the ultimate victory for those who respond. they want to put him to death, he withdraws, but even as he withdraws, he goes back to work. The time is short, and he needs to continue to serve. You may remember that in John 9, Jesus heals a blind man, and before he does that, he tells his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Thank you. 
illustrate that. He healed a blind man and allowed him to see the light. And what Jesus was telling his disciples there in John 9 is just as true for you and me. We have to work while we can. While God has given us the strength in the moment. Because as the book of Ecclesiastes makes so clear, one day the light will shine brighter. continue to minister, but we're told that he healed in private. That means he was face to face with people. In other words, in the church and the work of the kingdom, we're to give ourselves to and for others, not just to duties and responsibilities. I'm preaching to myself at times I find myself doing some things because I know it's expected of me as a pastor of this church. But I always have to remember the people behind the responsibility for the doing. People like you and your children and your grandchildren and your relatives and your neighbors and your Poor deacons have to do so much around here, but they do it for each one of you out here. Just as the elders serve you out here, as do all the other board members in the life of this congregation. You know, when I began my MDiv work at Erskine Seminary, I started doing the interim year on January the next schedule. And I went down there late on a Sunday got there a little before dark took all my belongings with me in a 67 VW Beetle and Dr. Randy Rubel met me at the door of the Christian Dimension now he was the vice president then of the seminary he was the head guy and I know he had preached that day and I don't know what other responsibilities he had carried out but yet he was there with me face to face to make sure that I met my roommate and and got settled in okay as a new student at the seminary. And I've never forgotten that and the impact that it made upon me because he was that kind of servant, because he was emulating the one who came into this world not to be served, but to serve and to do what? To give his life. I was talking to the 
or before the service, and he said, I'm interested in your title. I'm, I'm waiting to see what you're going to say about living in a hostile environment. And that's what he was talking about. And everybody so angry, and people are running over on the road hauling out garbage. Keep on going. You see, I think the point here that I'm trying to make here in the last part of the verse is that face-to-face is where we really are with the Lord. And face-to-face is where we can make an impact in the body of someone else who does not know Jesus Christ. And John Henry here a long time ago talking about evangelism. He kept saying over and over again, it's all about the people. It's all about the people. It's all about face to face. Because it's the people. Is it not the God text shows us that Jesus knew he would be called upon eventually to give the ultimate gift, that of his life, for the very ones who sent him to the cross. So he came into this world not to take, but to give, as Isaiah 42 makes clear. Just as God gave in sending his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is why Jesus tells you and me to take up our cross daily and follow Him. Even though we are taking, taking up our cross, we're giving, giving to the work of the kingdom. And this brings glory to God. And of course, Jesus' phrase, take up your cross, comes from the Roman custom of having the condemned person carry his cross beam. You know, Jesus had to do that. In essence, if you had been condemned by the empire, you were aiding in your own execution. I think Jesus wants us to think about that. Because as we take up our own cross, we aid in the death of ourselves, our selfish selves, our self-centeredness, our self-righteousness, our pride, and on and on we could go. And what does that really mean, practically speaking, in our daily lives? I think Paul puts it so well in Galatians 2 when he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. that kind of faith. These hostile 